Welcome to the Mortification of Spin, the regular podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Carl Truman, your host. I'm pastor of Cornerstone Presbyterian Church in Ambler, Pennsylvania, and professor of church history at Westminster Theological Seminary, Pennsylvania. And I'm here with my colleague, uh, Todd Pruitt, lead pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisburg, Virginia, and a man so smooth, he makes Carlos Santana look like a striper wannabe. You didn't understand those cultural references. You are too young to be listening to this podcast. Todd, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Carl. Um, I do want to just help you a little bit about with your uh, with your geography. It is Harrisonburg, Virginia, not just Harrisburg. Harrisonburg. We take this very seriously, as I have been a resident now for less than a week. Um, I'm, I'm becoming thoroughly, uh, uh, burgatized in, uh, in Harrisonburg, but we're very proud of our, of our little town in the, uh, in the Shenandoah Valley. You ought to come out and see us sometime. I will certainly try and do that. Yeah. And now it's uh, a PCA church. It's not OPC. I, yeah. It's so, you know, we have a sense of humor and, uh, you know, that, that sort of thing. I'm, I'm happy to slum it occasionally for Good, the weekend. Well, that's that's, that's not a problem. Yeah. should also say that we have with us uh, in the studio today uh, the Puppet Master. Who's the taking, Dark Lord. Yes. The Dark Lord is taking time out of his very busy schedule <laughs> uh, to uh, honor us with his presence. <laughs> and we have Mike and Aaron, as I've said before, our own answer to Sir George Martin. <laughs> uh, Todd, want to talk today, if I can translate this into terms that uh, people who read the Gospel Coalition would understand. Uh, <laughs> I want to talk today about your journey to a new tribe, uh, or as the rest of us would say, your move towards biblical church government. Uh, so Todd, you were a pastor of a kind of Anabaptist gathering down on the main line in, in Pennsylvania, and you've, you've since moved to a quasi-Presbyterian denomination, the, the PCA. You're obviously moving in the right direction. wonder if you'd like to, to take us through a few of the what if you'd like to open your heart sure. to us so that we might share yeah. some of the pain that you felt <laughs> as you've gone through this 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 transition? Well, yeah. Well, thanks, Carl, for sharing my journey uh, with me. I, I appreciate that. Uh, your tenderness is uh, is very much appreciated. I, I, it, it is. I I was born and raised a Southern Baptist, educated in Southern Baptist institutions that. Uh, that explains uh, a lot, I think. But it was not a, an Anabaptist church uh, that I served in for the last five years in, in the Philadelphia area. It was non-denominational. Just, just your standard schwammer. Schwammer on, Just, you, think, you know, broad, broad evangelical, <laughs> uh, non-denominational church uh, where I served for um, Have you for signed up years. some sort of tight severance policy that means you've got to speak in these terms? I, I have so. to speak in very, very vague terms. But, okay. Um, uh, no, so I, I spent f- almost five years in non-denominationalism. Prior to that, um, spent all of my life and all of my ministry years in in the Southern Baptist Convention, and am now uh, the pastor of a, as you've said, a Presbyterian church, a PCA church, which I know for you and some of my other OPC brethren is Presbyterian light. Um, but uh, we're, uh, we're we're pretty happy with uh, with where we are. But it has been a long journey. And uh, fraught with much peril. Um, what, what do you want to know specifically, Carl? 
Um, what are you? What, what were the things that that disillusioned you most about congregational independency? Well, one of the things that began to puzzle me was why, at least it seemed to me, why um, local church autonomy was being seen as an essential mark of the church almost, really. Um, what, what I've found kind of interesting is that as a Presbyterian, we practice a measure of congregational auto- autonomy that I think is actually quite healthy. What troubled me about the arrangement in, in the Southern Baptist Convention, not nothing against my Southern Baptist brethren, um, but was the lack of accountability of local churches to a larger body. Um, I, I was troubled by that. And, and what you find in the Southern Baptist Convention are wonderful Orthodox churches. You'll find Reformed, Calvinistic uh, Baptist churches uh, with some of the best preaching in the country. And then you'll find utterly ridiculous sideshows going on as well. And there's no accountability for those men who are practicing what I, what I think and what I think a lot of other Southern Baptists would think is something that is sub-biblical in their churches on Sunday. And I, I, I just I don't think that that level of autonomy that allows a church to basically do whatever they want so long as they don't start ordaining homosexuals, I, I, don't, I don't know that that's healthy or biblical. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that puzzles me about the Southern Baptist Convention, and I have a number of friends who are Southern Baptists, is the fact that the one thing that seems to bind them together is the subject and mode of baptism. Right. Uh, it's, it's strange from a Presbyterian perspective that that should be enough to bind you together when so much else right. divides. The, the system of soteriology, for example, would seem to me to be absolutely critical to developing some sort of coherent version. Right of church unity. Yeah, you'll find you'll find sharp sharp differences on such substantive matters as God's role in the salvation of his people. Sharp differences over that. Sharp differences over the application of the atonement. Uh, but so long as I believe in church autonomy um, and and only baptized believers then I'm in. Yeah. And that that to me seems like very weak ground for genuine unity and cooperation. Yeah. And to go back to an earlier comment you made, I think it is a popular Baptist myth, this idea that somehow congregations have no say. Right. That we are, I think Congregationalists, Baptists tend to equate Presbyterianism with a form of Episcopalianism. If you're a member of a Presbyterian congregation, you do have a say. You have a vote. You have the the right to nominate elders. You have the right to vote for elders. No elder, no minister can be imposed upon you from above. Uh, Certainly when you are called to the ministry, the, the call is placed into your hands as a minister by the presbytery. But the call goes from the church to the presbytery. You know, the presbytery has an effective power of veto, but it doesn't have the the right of patronage, one might say. And that's one of the things that most strikes me about uh, independency is it's only ever six months away from total chaos. Right. You get the wrong people joining your church, the wrong people dying at any given point in time, the wrong leader having a nervous breakdown, and... It's a total mess. Uh, Presbyterianism, can it go wrong? Yes. 
but it takes a whole lot longer and right. there are a lot more checks and balances right. involved. How do you do, good lady? I'm Arthur, King of the Britons. Whose castle is that? King of the who? The Britons. Who are the Britons? Well, we all are. We are all Britons. And I am your king. I didn't know we had a king. We're an anarcho-syndicalist commune. We take it in turns to act as a sort of executive officer for the week. Yes. But all the decisions of that officer have to be ratified at a special bi-weekly meeting. Yes, I see. By a civil majority in the case of purely internal affairs. Be quiet. But by a two-thirds majority in the case of more... Be quiet. I order you to be quiet. Order? Who does he think he is? (laughs) I'm your king. Well, I didn't vote for you. I I found, and and I agree with you completely, because I have found that there is a misconception... Uh, that Presbyterian churches um, have no autonomy. They, they have actually quite a, quite a bit of autonomy. And as you said, it's not at all like uh, Episcopalianism. Um, we own our own property. We vote on our staff members, etc. cetera. Um, the, the advantage, though, over, a, over an entirely autonomous congregation is that uh, there's a collective wisdom that comes from this group, the Presbytery, that I think is very, very valuable. And, and I'm, I'm, I've seen it very vividly just in my own transition and going through the licensure and ordination process. Um, it's very thorough. It is very thorough. Um, clearly, we're south of heaven, so mistakes are still going to be made. Um, sinful people are still uh, going to, uh, to cause problems, and, and wolves will still dress in sheep's clothing. However, the process that um, the denomination puts its candidates through is outstanding. And so that a church, a Presbyterian church, can be reasonably sure that once a man comes before the congregation for a vote, um, that this man has been vetted well, that he knows the scriptures, that he knows doctrine, um, that he's been examined thoroughly. And in non-denominational churches, in other Baptist denominations, uh, a congregation doesn't have necessarily that sort of confidence. So when I was licensed into the ministry as a Southern Baptist, my the entire process consisted of a 30-minute conversation with my pastor, who was a wonderful man, very, very, but a very, very large church in Houston, Texas, thousands in attendance. Um, he knew who I was because I was very active in the youth group, but he didn't know me. We had a very lovely 30-minute conversation, and then I was licensed into the ministry. And how does that compare with what you've gone through in the PCA? Oh, my goodness. When I was ordained um, as a Southern Baptist, again, it was, it was a very, very simple uh, process. I appeared before the deacons of the church. They asked me a few questions. Um, in fact, I remember the questions. Who um, are you? Well, you well the, be, uh, that kind um, of thing. G- give my testimony, my, my conversion testimony. Yeah. Um, the other question was, give us a brief quote. Give us a brief systematic theology. Oh, fantastic! <laughs> um, it was. This so is I, brief in the American sense, yeah, not the Dutch sense. Right? I Ex- no, it was not in the Dutch sense. And then I was asked about women deacons. And then, other than that, uh, then it was over, and we went into after that a worship service where where hands were laid upon me. Now. Um, I, I think that's a dangerous way to ordain a man. Yeah, I would. Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, one, one wouldn't appoint a brain surgeon in no, that way, and no. you're doing something just as uh, right, right. skillful as brain surgery. Yeah, exactly. So I, I've been I've been encouraged by the weightiness of 
um, of licensure and ordination for the PCA. Uh, so, it just I mean, just briefly, what it's involved so far, far are, are four exams, uh, four written exams for licensure that are uh, very, very thorough. And when I say very thorough, I mean very, very thorough over uh, theology, uh, the Bible, uh, Christian experience, and church polity and governance. And then I'll have three more exams to take, one on the sacraments, one on church history, and then one on the history of the PCA. Uh, And then I have two papers to write, an exegetical paper and a theology paper. I also have to preach before the presbytery. Fantastic. And, And so what's encouraging about that is that there's a denomination that is taking the licensure and ordination of its men deadly seriously yeah, yeah. so that even though uh, you know a, a goofball can slip through periodically i'm sure a, a church has much more has reason for much more confidence than in another setting yeah yeah i mean i when i tell people i had to take six theology exams six <laughs> systematic theology exams as vice president of Westminster Theological Seminary, in order to get ordained in the OPC, right. you know, Baptist friends' eyes are like saucers. They, right. they can't believe it. But I think that is a sign of how seriously we take the doctrinal testimony, the confessional testimony of the church. And too often we're allowing men into the pulpit in general in the evangelical world who cool and hip and can turn a phrase in a pulpit, but have very little understanding of the actual depth of, of Christian theology. Right. Yeah, it, it, is, it is clear that it is expected in my denomination for uh, an ordained man to have a mastery of the Word. Yeah. And, uh, and if he doesn't, uh, he's not going to get through the first round of tests. Yeah, well, that is the old Princetonian pres- Presbyterian mm. ideal of an educated ministry. Some people say it's elitist. Well, there's a sense in which we want it. We want to be elitist because it's a it's a dangerous occupation in right. terms of you're you're trading in people's souls, and you want the right people doing it. What is good, I think, about Presbyterianism is we often we do have these. We use the word "normally" a lot mm-hmm. in our rule books, which means normally a man must be highly educated. We can make exceptions for the the occasional very talented person who may not have had the appropriate educational background, but by and large, you've got to be well drilled in the theological field in order to to occupy a pulpit. Right. I mean, the other thing I like about Presbyterianism too, and I, I actually think. I'm going to play the card. I think the OPC is better at this than the PCA. <laughs> I'm hasn't? sure you do. But we have, by and large, avoided personality cults. There right. are one or two big names in the PCA. Sure. But what strikes me about things like the Southern Baptist Convention is for all of their the fact that they repudiate Presbyterianism and they repudiate Episcopalianism, they are functionally Episcopalian mm. because they vest great power yes. in significant uh, individuals. You know, right. uh, Al Mola good friend of the Alliance would sure. be an example of somebody that people look to. Mark Dever would be another one. Uh, these are men who have extraordinary power out with whatever congregation they belong to. And what I like about Presbyterianism is that that power that you have outside your congregation is regulated by rules and procedures and by other people. It doesn't just, it isn't just rooted in the charismatic mm-hmm. personality yeah, of the and, individual. And, and as someone who was raised as a Southern Baptist in Houston, Texas, which is as Southern Baptist a town as you can as you can find outside of maybe Nashville, Tennessee. Um, and growing up during 
the great controversies in the Southern Baptist Convention in the late 70s and early 80s. I can tell you, I'm, I'm for, for the sake of the Southern Baptist Convention, I'm very grateful that people like Al Mohler and Mark Dever have great influence. The problem is um, there was a time when men very much their opposite had great influence, and the denomination uh, was, spiritually speaking and uh, uh, theologically speaking, very, very unhealthy because of it. But the, the, the point is, is that there's nothing really to keep that in check. And, uh, you know, I, one, one of the ways I, I, I described the, being a Southern Baptist um, to, to some folks is that it's really not a denomination as people think of a denomination. So that uh, the, the hierarchy is oftentimes uh, an informal one. Yeah, where, Weber would say as a charismatic right, hierarchy. Right. Yeah. And, and again, if, if you've got somebody who's very sound theologically, well, then, then, then good, grateful for that, but uh, you're playing a dangerous game. Yeah. Yeah. We need to get to the biggie, of course, and the big one is baptism. Right. Now, there have been some very encouraging signs coming from the Baptist world on the on the on the baptism front over recent years. You have John Piper. Yeah. Now, I think you can you can be a member at his church uh, if you were sprinkled as an infant and right. you know, right. as Presbyterians, we're very grateful for that <laughs> move on the on yeah. the on the part of significant Baptist leader there. Yes. Uh, others have somewhat, you know, dug themselves a ditch to die in, uh, not mentioning our friend in Washington, D.C. No, 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 no. specifically. But uh, baptism, it is the big one, Todd. Uh, can, you, can you outline how you came to the biblical position on that? <laughs> sure, sure. Are you well, laughing at the? You don't think it's the biblical position? <laughs> and I do believe You're... it's the biblical position. <laughs> and uh, if I, I, I just laugh because I'm sitting across a table from you, and I and I know the way your mind works now. However, just my passive aggressive. Sure, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, nothing, nothing at all weird about your mention of Washington D.C. However, um, well, you know, it begins for for a guy like me who who moves from being Baptistic to being. Um, to, to, to embrace a covenant understanding of, of, of baptism. It all begins with the doctrines of grace. And so you become this, this Calvinistic Baptist, which I, I found, moving on, for me, became a kind of a, an uncomfortable tension because the doctrines of grace, I think, have implications um, beyond themselves. And maybe it's just because as you embrace the doctrines of grace, you, you have to start dealing with issues of covenant, and I became convinced that there was greater continuity uh, between the Old and New Testament, greater continuity with uh, the covenants um, than my Baptistic brothers. And, and that had necessary implications um, for the understanding of baptism. And long story short, I will just say it became clear to me that the burden of proof as to belongs to those who believe that believers should not baptize their infants and not the other way around. I think the burden of proof goes to the Baptistic who believe that suddenly something happened in, in redemptive history uh, that made it inappropriate, indeed even sinful, to give your, to, for believers to give their infants the sign of the covenant. Um, this was so embedded in the history of God's people that their children were members of the covenant community that if that were to have changed, um, I, I can't imagine that not being made clear in Scripture. 
I see that the puppet master is actually weeping here. I can see that his, <laughs> his own heart is is being softened to the truth of the gospel uh, at this point. Uh, right. I think you make a good point there, Todd. I, yeah, I myself was a Baptist uh, at one time, and for me, it was no single thing that that changed my mind. It was the a cumulative impact of a whole host of what I consider to be inconsistencies in the Baptist position that ultimately tipped the balance. I was talking to somebody just last week, and I did say to them, you know, I can't take you to the silver bullet text that will simply change you from being a Baptist to a Peter Baptist, but I can point you to five, six, seven radical inconsistencies in, in the Baptist position or difficulties. And ultimately, you've got to make an assessment of these difficulties I can live with or are they difficulties that I cannot live with? And I came to the conclusion that, that I simply could not live with them. Uh, and on top of that, there was the the ecclesiastical structure question yep. for me. Yep. Uh, Baptists are, as far as I know, almost universally congregational in polity. I know sovereign grace ministries have shifted a little on that recently, but congregational polity seems to me to be uniformly, historically disastrous. I would agree, and that was another piece of the puzzle for me in my... Uh, in, in in my movement to Presbyterianism was the uh, I think the overwhelmingly uh, biblical witness to um, Presbyterian uh, church government. I I I am not I'm not only not persuaded by the strictly congregationalist um, position. I'm I'm persuaded that it that it is simply not supported by Scripture in in the way it's presented. Um, I, I am persuaded that Presbyterian church government is the is the best understanding of church government um, uh, biblically um, that we have, and and that was that was a a big piece of it for me, and and I and I have to say also, um, and and this is perhaps getting into more pragmatic type issues, but but it was important um, in my movement is is having been in a non denominational context for five years, you know. We we you'll you'll hear uh, alcoholics uh, say to to somebody or about a certain situation it drove me to drink. Uh, in some ways, um, being a Southern Baptist for so many years, and and then even more so, being non denominational for five years, um, helped drive me uh, to something uh, different. And and actually being non denominational for five years um, uh, forced me, if you will to examine particularly church government. Yeah, particularly, of course, when 99% of your friends are Presbyterians as <laughs> that, well. That, that presumably that, had that, some influence that on That could have a little <laughs> bit of influence, yes. But, you know, the world of, of quote-unquote, broad evangelicalism um, and, and, and churches and movements that would define themselves as, quote, broadly evangelical, um, I believe is a, is a failing project. Mm-hmm. Um, I think denominationalism is very, very wise. In fact, I would suggest it's almost, it's normatively uh, necessary um, south of heaven. Yeah. That's a good point. I think uh, this is probably something we should explore in another program, but it also reminds me of why I think that, that groups like the Gospel Coalition find it so hard to understand why people like us are skeptical of their project. Uh uh, there are specific issues that I'd be skeptical of, but structurally, structurally, right. I have a problem because 
If you're a Southern Baptist, you have to sacrifice nothing in throwing your energy into something like the Gospel Coalition. If you're a Presbyterian and want to throw your energy into the Gospel Coalition, you have to sacrifice everything that makes you a Presbyterian. Right. You have to sacrifice your view of church government. You have to sacrifice your understanding of the sacraments. Uh, and I think it's, it is very hard for independent Baptists to understand that you know, Presbyterians, we have our wider gatherings Absolutely. that help us reflect the unity of the body Absolutely. of Christ. They're called our denominations. Right. And just setting up another denomination but pretending it isn't pretending a denomination, that it's not. Right. what you're really doing is you're saying to Presbyterians, you need to cease to be Presbyterian. Come over and let us run the show. And that's, that's without wanting to get personal about it, that's a real problem for a conviction Presbyterian. Right, right. And that's part of the, the, the tricky nature of of some of the um, parachurch organizations is um, uh, they can become too grand in in their ambitions. And so they end up becoming a quasi-denomination without, without the accountability of, of a denomination. And as someone now who is um, a happy, very happy denominationalist, specifically a Presbyterian. I can tell you, I, I it would grieve me to abandon that now, or to, or to have to um, uh, chip away at it a bit in order to make some other alliances. Uh, the fact that I'm a part of a of a brotherhood um, of of like-minded men who can add wisdom to my life and sharpen me, um, who are as committed to the church as I am, um, that's that's my primary group. That's that's who I'm a part of, and I'm a and I'm a member of them. I'm a member of of that group, and um, I, I'm I'm just concerned that some of the alliances that are out there, some of the parachurch organizations, could cause um, a necessary compromise. I probably shouldn't have said alliances, um, uh, since we are a part of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. But one of the things I appreciate about this organization. Um, that sponsors this podcast is that um, it's a ministry that knows it's not a denomination and it allows for uh, some fellowship and some resourcing to like-minded churches um, to encourage them. And I hope that that's what mortification of spin is. We are a casual conversation about things that count. Every once in a while, we give away books. Sometimes we have guests that are even more interesting than us, Carl. Can you imagine such a thing? It's hard, but we do occasionally find somebody that fits that description. We, we do. And if you are a regular listener or if you are brand new to the Mortification of Spin, thank you so much for joining Carl and I today. Hope that the conversation has been helpful. And uh, please uh, uh, listen to uh, Mortification of Spin whenever you get a chance. Support the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Go to their website. Wonderful resources there to help strengthen uh, uh, the church and to serve you well. Thank you for listening.